Welcome to Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Burhovich. In the previous episode, I spoke with Pam Stahl, Chief Commercial Officer at Sidekick Health, having recently joined Sidekick from Anthem. We speak about the company's journey to U.S. and expanding their channels from pharma to health plans, providers, amongst many other topics. Today, I speak with Steve Driver, Medical Director of Digital Therapeutics at one of the largest health systems in U.S., Advocate Aurora Health. I have been itching to get a view from a health system perspective on this show since season one. But before we dive in, Steve recently reached out via LinkedIn. We quickly hopped on a Zoom session, and I was immediately impressed with his drive and dedication to digital therapies. As a practicing cardiologist, it is always great to hear from somebody who is practicing this in the front lines. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve. Steve, welcome to the DTX podcast. I'm kind of remembering the day you reached out to me on LinkedIn as an avid listener. And so we kind of quickly, after our chat, made an executive decision to have your views on DTX. Thank you. Bring a wealth of knowledge and representing one of the largest and top 10 largest health system in US. So welcome to the show. And please tell our audience who you are, a little bit of your background, and one interesting fact for the listeners. Thanks, Eugene. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I consider myself a long-time listener, first-time caller here. I, I think I told you, you got me through a couple of long road trips, one in a massive RV to Texas. So thank you for that, first of all. I am an interventional cardiologist with Advocate Aurora Health in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also medical director of digital therapeutics for AAH and an associate medical director for health behavior change with APP, which is the managed care part of our organization. A little bit about my background. I was always interested in both disease prevention and health promotion, along with treating seriously ill patients. So in medical school, I took a summer off, actually, and went and worked for the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion at HHS. And I was working on the then 2010 mid-course review, and was just struck by the amount of preventable death from things like physical inactivity, obesity, smoking, and made a decision then that, you know, I'd focus on treating patients when they're sick, but also you know, working upstream and trying to modify some of the risks that lead to patients becoming seriously ill. And now, as an interventional cardiologist, you know, I often meet my patients for the first time when they're at their sickest, having a heart attack, undergoing an emergency procedure. And when we get them through that, there in the hospital, we monitor every beat of their heart, track every medication administration. But when they leave, I've just been struck by the fact that they're sort of on their own. And that never seemed quite right to me. And Digital therapeutics, to me, are an opportunity to stay in the pocket with the patient and help them continue to live their best life when they leave the hospital and have us stay in touch with them. So my role as medical director of digital therapeutics takes up a significant portion of my time and it's something that I really love. I have a real passion for comedy, specifically comedy writing. I always said when I come to Chicago, I'm going to do something at Second City. So I took the entire 30-part comedy writing series at Chicago's Second City put out a little show there as well, an amateur show. And every summer I enter a, a lottery, an internet lottery with all of the email addresses I have from the old AOL address up to Yahoo to win tickets to Saturday Night Live. And I've actually been there twice, uh, talked my way into floor seats at one point and made some very awkward eye contact with Lauren Michaels before he slowly backed away. Amazing. We've had musicians, opera singers, and now a comedian. So I keep offering it up to these talents to express their other talents on this show, but we'll leave it up to you. If you want to crack a joke in the middle, feel free. You mentioned your role 
and it's multiple role because you're still practicing. And then as a medical director of digital therapeutics for a large health system, let's peel the onion a little bit, right? Because it is somewhat unique. And I love hearing that there's a medical director for digital therapeutics in one of the top 10 health systems. Peel the onion for us. What does that mean? What is the expectations and the role? When I think about digital therapeutics, I think of this as part of a broad umbrella of digital health. And a lot of what we did at first was just disaggregating what are digital therapeutics from all of the other digital health tools that we work with in a large healthcare organization. But I always say the most important word in digital therapeutic is therapeutic. This is a tool that's going to prevent a chronic condition, manage a chronic condition, or treat an acute condition. And we have recently gone through a strategic refresh that is heavily focused on digital health and need for digital therapeutics council. Our role is to provide strategic vision and pull together an evidence-based formulary of digital therapeutics that our clinicians and patients can be equally competent in prescribing and using as you would a medicine. Our vision is that these can be used alongside of or instead of medications. And if that's the case, there has to be a high bar, a high standard of proof that we can go to our clinicians and our patients and say, this is something you can use as treatment. This is different than those 300,000 mobile health applications that you could download on your own from the app store. These are treatments, and we need to treat them the same way that a formulary P&T committee might when it comes to pharmacy. We're thinking carefully about what we put in the hands of our patients and clinicians. These are new tools. It's a completely new field of medicine, and we have to be careful about what we put in the hands of our patients because I think there's just a different bar when you're working with patients than maybe when you're downloading it yourself or even when you're working with employees or your health insurer. When your doctor recommends it, that comes with a certain amount of trust. And part of our role is to safeguard that trust. Amazing to see your role in this large health system driving some of that. As one of the largest health systems, you guys have tremendous expertise across different therapeutic areas. And it's always, you know, startups like to focus. On one side, you don't have that luxury because you have patients, comorbidities, et cetera. How do you guys look at Where's the focus for DTX today as you guys are advancing this? I think what attracted me to Advocate of Our Health when I was looking for a job is Advocate offers that depth of service. We can take care of really sick patients, but we also have a lot of risk-based contracts. And the fact that we have a lot of risk-based contracts makes us work upstream. So we have worked at the top of that pyramid for a while where we think about patient who already has heart failure that's uncontrolled and we're taking full financial risk for them. That is a predictably high spender who also will have a lot of morbidity and potentially mortality. And while we spend a lot of our time trying to bring that uncontrolled heart failure patient down into you know well-controlled heart failure, so they're not coming out of the hospital, they still have heart failure. And I wanted to work with an organization that is incented to work upstream. So focusing on disease prevention, health promotion, risk factors that are ultimately going to lead you know, someone who has hypertension and dyslipidemia to have cardiovascular disease and then not just cardiovascular disease, but uncontrolled. And so I think at Advocate, we have the luxury of of working with those really sick patients, but also working upstream on some of the risk factors. So I'm thinking about things like obesity, hypertension, uncontrolled diabetes, but even moving further back than that, pre-diabetes as well. We're sort of agnostic when it comes to the treatment. I'd love for our doctors to be able to sit down in front of the EHR, it happens to be epic in our case, and say, what is the medical condition that this patient is dealing with? What is the best treatment for it? And be able to either go to the medication tab in epic and prescribe, say we're looking at pre-diabetes, 
you know, metformin, if they're you know, familiar enough with digital therapeutics to know that the diabetes prevention program was compared against metformin in 2007 and published in a New England Journal of Medicine, perhaps they want to go to the digital tab and instead prescribe a digital therapeutic for prediabetes. So I'd like us to stay focused too, but I really want us to get to the point where there is, we're sort of treatment agnostic. The tool that the clinician prescribes should be focused on the clinical need rather than the tool itself. As you were talking about the two tabs, it's the molecule and it's the digital therapy. And to your point, they're both therapeutic. What are the level of evidence you guys are looking for? Because there's a prescription digital therapeutics that go through the FDA approval. To what extent do you guys go further with it? Or again, if you back up, what is the some of the filtering slash process that you take in order to potentially be in that digital tab? So the level of evidence. Sure. I'm glad you asked that. We had the benefit of coming to this with relatively fresh eyes because we had started the Digital Therapeutics Council at Advocate Health, which by the way, is composed of about 50% clinicians because this is mainly a clinical issue, but we can't do it alone. So I work closely with health information technology, legal, enterprise population health, all of that matters. And so we think about the burden of proof that we would need to use these. We came at it with fresh eyes and we said, how do we evaluate these tools? And we thought about it in three parts. One is clinical efficacy, and that gets at your question of level of evidence required. The second is the patient experience. So do people enjoy using this? And the third is it the right strategic fit for us. And so broadly, does it work? Do people like it? And is it right for us within clinical efficacy? And we have a rubric, part of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance uh, Payer Advisory Board. And it's not unique to us to have a rubric. The Digital Therapeutics Alliance has a great one that I would steer listeners to help with clinical decision-making as well. But we broke it down into a five-part scale. And I think this is good for the entrepreneurs who may be thinking about how to work with large health systems since we can be a large source of a patient population. At the top would be a five. That would be a tool that has multiple well-done randomized clinical studies supporting the evidence-based claim. Below that would be a four, something with a randomized trial but you know, with some issues with the evidence. Coming down to a three, and this is an important distinction, an observational study, a well-done observational study that's not randomized. And I think that's key. If a new digital therapeutic is thinking about building out their evidence base and they're choosing between investing in a randomized clinical trial or doing a well-done observational study, well-done observational study will not move beyond a three in our rubric because it still leaves that question of unknown confounders. If it looked like this worked out in the observational study, that's really hypothesis generating. To prove that out, you need a randomized clinical trial. And it goes back to my original point about the trust that comes from your doctor prescribing something to you. We really need to know beyond the shadow of the doubt that that works. And there have been many medications that looked good in hypothesis generating observational studies that when put through a true randomized clinical trial just didn't turn out and sometimes had harm. Below a three would be an observational study with serious study limitations, and below that would be you know, a non-randomized white paper individual site experience. So I think the burden of proof when working with the health system is higher. We're rolling this out with our patients, and so I really encourage the listeners to seriously consider well-done RCTs. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Steve Driver, Medical Director of Digital Therapeutics at Advocate Aurora Health. You mentioned patients. Obviously, you guys exist because of patients and helping patients get through their journey. 
Before we get in the business hypothesis and more additional evidence and dive deeper into a lot of that, I would love to hear how you guys envision that patient journey on a DTX. I know you alluded to quickly on Metformin and then you go to a digital tap for something else, but maybe kind of take a step back. But also you guys are something like 70,000, 80,000 people in the company, in the overall system. So how do you manage that from a patient journey perspective? And let's step back and envision what that future looks like with DTX. Sure, happy to. I'll give you an anecdote, actually. So I had seen a patient in the hospital. He had come in having a heart attack. We had brought him to the cath lab, and I stented open the artery that was problematic for him. And then he was upstairs recovering in the hospital. And I went up to enroll him personally in a digital health tool that we were offering that was a two-way patient communication and education tool. So I wouldn't really describe it as a digital therapeutic, but it was a digital health tool. And I went up, and he's got a Bluetooth headset in his ear, and he's on his smartphone. And I thought, this is a home run. This is going to be an easy one. This person is set up for it. It wasn't easy. You know, this gentleman had forgotten his App Store password, and we had to help him reset that. He then needed to go into his email to pick up the automated link, the call to action to download the digital health tool. And he had to download his Yahoo Mail client, delete some space off of his phone, set up a multi-character password. And you know, maybe because his interventional cardiologist is hovering over his shoulder, he had some trouble with that a few times. It took maybe 15 minutes, but once he had it and had it downloaded as a native app on his phone... You know, he was really able to fly with it. So we think that there's a definite human connection as well. It's more than just deploying tech for a specific solution. To that end, patients can receive digital therapeutics in a few different ways. Advocate or Enterprises, which is the investment arm of our organization, led a round of investment with Zealth, which serves as a connection between the EHR and third-party digital health tools. So that's a real advantage for us. That allows us to individually prescribe these tools at the point of care when a clinician is seeing the patient or based on certain clinical characteristics, batch prescribe these tools out to patients either on behalf of the physician or on behalf of the health system. And I think that's an important point too. We rolled out one digital therapeutic and really wanted that message to come from the doctor. We wanted the digital therapeutic to be prescribed by the doctor, but we didn't want one more thing on the doctor's plate. So what we did is rolled this out in four of our largest regions, and we met with all of the practice managers, practice directors, influential physicians, individual physicians, and said, here's a clinical condition. It happened to be prediabetes, and we would like to prescribe this to your patients. Now, in this case, we're asking them to eat more fruits and vegetables and exercise more, and I don't think anyone will object to it. However, we would like to send it from you so that when the patient receives a message, it is not from Advocate or Health, it's from Dr. Jim Smith so that that message is more likely to be opened. And I think that was just a lot of trust building. If I can say this on your behalf, what else could I say on your behalf? And I had the luxury of having taken care of some of their patients when they were very sick, so we built up some trust in that way. But it's been really important to us that we do this with the doctors. So ultimately, our physicians can prescribe these. We can prescribe them on behalf of the physicians with their input, of course. Once the patient receives the prescription, that generates a call to action. That call to action can come either via text message, an email, or a message in LiveWell, which is a digital health tool in which Epic's MyChart lives. Patients then download the tool, begin to use it. A bi-directional flow of information can happen between the third-party digital therapeutic and self back into our EHR. So that all takes some build between ourselves, the digital therapeutic, self, which is why I think this requires multidisciplinary leadership from both a technical standpoint and also a clinical standpoint. 
Thank you for taking us through. Mike and team Excel have done a great job integrating into systems and making that experience as easy as possible for the prescribers and the consumers slash patients. As we're still on this topic around patient journeys and prescribing, again, I'm going to allude to I like your tab structure. I can kind of almost visualize it. How do you guys think about kind of the DTX standalone versus Drug Plus? Because there are many companies that are now adding digital tools and therapies surrounding their drugs, and that's kind of packaged together to a certain extent. And then there's some standalone. I think I know your answer, but I'd love to hear it from you, how you guys look at that. This is the dreaded, it depends answer, if that's what you're expecting. Yeah, love those. I was expecting a little, it depends, but that's that's part of how we continue peeling the onion here on the usability of this all and the decision-making. Absolutely. So I think it depends on the clinical condition. So we look at the digital therapeutic as a treatment. I think one of your former guests actually put it very well that Digital therapeutics have gone through three stages of development from first being, I know you don't like the word adherence, but adherence monitoring and promoting tools to digitizing things that we know work in person, but making them easier in a digital form, either cognitive behavioral therapy or a digital diabetes prevention program that doesn't require 16 in-person visits, for example. And now tools that truly impact us at a cellular or neuroentrainment level. So I think it will be very rare in the future to have a blockbuster, very expensive drug that we have no idea how often someone is taking it. So I think for those, it makes a lot of sense to have a drug plus program. I'm thinking about Achille Interactive or Endeavor RX. I thought that Eddie Martucci has given some great examples in the past about if I prescribe a medicine and then ask the patient or their family 30 days later, how is it going? It's really hard to say. And so to be able to have ecological momentary assessments with text messages asking patients and family members, how are you feeling right now? And graph that out on a monitor that can be reviewed at a follow-up visit. I think that's a really important way to create something that's drug plus. From a standalone standpoint, I think if these tools can be shown to be equally or more efficacious in a comparative effectiveness study against a medicine, then they should be used on their own. On the other hand, if they only enhance the use of a drug, then by all means use those together. But that's the beautiful thing about modern medicine is rather than starting with a treatment in search of a solution, it's a focus on the pathogenesis, what's wrong, how does this influence normal physiology, and you know what mechanism of action can we throw at this to improve things. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my clinical and commercial partner on this podcast. Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the Chief Medical Officer and General Manager of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hey, Stephen. I've noticed that one of the points of tension between clinicians and digital therapeutics creators is perhaps very particular ways of doing things or solving problems. How do you bridge this? Thanks, Chandana. That's a really interesting question. It reminds me of a statistic that I hear often that from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement that I think it takes almost a dozen years for something to move from a seminal, well-done randomized clinical trial into broad-spread implementation. And that happens whether it's a biologic or a DTX. And so I think part of what we need to do is work on educating clinicians about these tools so they can feel equally comfortable reaching for a digital therapeutic tool as they might traditional biologic medication. And a lot of what we do in medicine is just based on what we learned. So Maybe I learned in medical school that someone who has a heart attack 
stays in the hospital for three days. Well, perhaps they only need to stay in the hospital for one or two days. So, you know, moving past those dogmatic ways of doing things and instead focusing in on the evidence is, I think, how we move things forward. And I'm going to hop in here real quick. I alluded to this earlier. You have 70,000 plus employees and there's different levels of understanding digital tools. And aside from Chandra's question around how do you really bridge that divide between the creators, I also think there's probably lots of education to be done internally within the health system. So maybe you can just chat about that a bit. One thing we're contemplating to get past that need for education is digital grand rounds. And physicians are used to learning about the latest and the greatest in medicine through a, a grand rounds of sorts. And I think that's one thing we should do. On the other side, I think why restrict this to digital? Perhaps as we move forward, we'll start thinking about for condition X, when we go through treatments Y and Z, one of those really should be a digital treatment. And we should be able to reach for the tool that leads to the best outcomes for the patient, whether that happens to be medication or if it's a digital therapeutic. So I think a lot of it comes down to education, both you know in medical school, in residency, in fellowship, and then ongoing. Most of what I use in my day-to-day practice does not have anything to do with what I learned in medical school. I think it provided a clear foundation, but you know, what I do day-to-day with my patients is really driven by what I learned in fellowship and what I learned in continuing medical education. So those are key points where we need to get the word out. Obviously, we're all learning. As they say, always be closing, always be selling. I also like always be learning. And I think entrepreneurs can also learn from and with the health systems. Do you think health systems, especially as large as yourself, are actually great partners for startups because typical stereotypes of slow moving, the rubric that you mentioned earlier, yes, there's access to great amount of population upstream. Just curious how you guys think about it. And I know the seat you're sitting in, but I've also heard on the other side from startups, again, just frustrations, not with you guys, just in general with health systems. No, I agree with that. I was a scientific officer for a startup too. So I've sat on the other side as well. And large organizations come with large populations of patients and a lot of resources. So that's the benefit. On the other side, they can come with a lot of red tape and bureaucracy. And that's something that we're trying to avoid. There's a saying in the cath lab, which is go slow to go fast, or the quickest way to make a a short case, a long case is to rush. So I think what we have done is try to be deliberate we were sensing frustration from some of the vendors coming through that they would get pitch fatigue, having to talk to different parts of the organization over and over again. So what we've done with the Digital Therapeutics Council is try to bring together a lot of the decision makers into one council so that we can have a clear sense of what our goals are. So rather than necessarily reacting to incoming, we'll put out requests for proposals depending on the new care models that we're trying to generate bring things through in an organized way, narrow down quickly to a top one or two tools, and then really use those. So any tool that we are potentially going to deploy to our patients, we'll actually try ourselves. So I'll often have three or four digital therapeutics on my phone that I'm using at any one time, which is always fun, and then have a clear decision-making tool and escalation pathway. Yes, it's deliberate and it takes some time, but there's an end in sight and it's not ongoing process where a vendor or a company is never going to get an answer. We try to be pretty deliberate about our intake process, our evaluation process, and then you know where we take it from there. Fantastic. I'll poke at some entrepreneurs that I know pitching to uh, AH. <laughs> <laughs> um, just uh, busting some chops here. 
We've talked about pathways, decision-making, the outcomes and the benefits and the evidence, but let's step back into the business hypothesis of a large system and engaging with a digital therapeutic as an industry even. There's so many aspects on it, but I'm curious, again, how yourself and the team are looking at the hypothesis of a digital therapeutic embedded into a health system. Sure. The way we look at it is half of millennial and younger patients don't necessarily engage in traditional primary care or intend to in the future. So many such patients will look to digital disruptors for one-off point solutions, but those services don't necessarily offer the same depth of services that they need. So a man who's online searching for erectile dysfunction medications, perhaps he can receive that from a digital-only company, but he may also need a colonoscopy. So we want to bring patients in for what they want, but get them what they need. And I think digital therapeutics are one way to make our system more attractive and give patients what they want in that way. I also think that it depends on the payer source. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past. So some of our patients may by chance alone have a relationship between a digital therapeutic and their insurer. And if there's a clinical need, that's a no-brainer for us, right? We have a patient with a clinical need and someone else willing to pay for it. By all means, it's on us to make sure that the technical infrastructure works, but that's an easy one. I think along those lines are those patients who are in our risk-based contracts because that mirrors what a lot of the digital therapeutics started with. They worked with large employers who are self-insured, insurance contracts. They have a per member, per month business case. And that's an easy transition for the digital therapeutics as well. The group that's in the middle and where we're trying to think carefully about this is what about those fee-for-service patients? So as a physician, I'm seeing a patient, I don't always necessarily know their payer status, and I don't want to choose the treatments that they receive based on who's paying the bills. I also don't necessarily want to prescribe them something, have them show up uh, either online or at a specialty pharmacy and find out that it's not covered. So that offers a lot of disappointment as well. And so you know, we're trying to be creative about what we do with those patients. The idea that we as a health system would just treat everyone as if they're a risk-based patient probably doesn't fly when you think about just the total volumes that we're dealing with. We don't typically see a patient with diabetes, prescribe metformin, and then follow them to the pharmacy and pay for it, right? Unless they're in a risk-based contract. So I think that's something important for entrepreneurs to think through when they're thinking about working with a group like ours is you need to work with us to be flexible around payer status. I also think RPM can be valuable here. I think of RPM and digital therapeutics as different parts of digital health. For example, some digital therapeutic tools, just by virtue of the intervention, spin off at least 16 physiologic measures a month, which is the requirement for billing. In some ways, go to, quote, waste. They're not really wasted because they're helping patients change behavior. You can layer coaching on top of those goal-setting incentives, but no one's necessarily billing for them. And so I think integrating RPM capabilities to capture that data is important. That's a little easier with Bluetooth-enabled devices, but Bluetooth-enabled devices are actually, I think, harder for patients than cellular-enabled devices. Our interest is in finding ways to capture cellular data that is created by those digital therapeutic devices and bring it into our RPM platform potentially and even bill for it. So I think there are ways to generate revenue here, but As a clinician, my main goal is to choose the best clinical tool for the patient. I also think as time goes on and the Access to Prescription Digital Therapeutics Act hopefully passes, large health systems that have set themselves up for success by doing some of this foundational work will find it much easier to transition when we don't have to put so much thought into payer status. I typically ask the role of the doctors, nurses, pharmacists. I think we've talked quite a lot 
around the capability of scaling the education side, leveraging tools like Zelf that are part of the system, the prescribing component of it. Within that, can we take a quick deep dive in the pharmacists and how you look at the role of the pharmacist in the front lines of this? Because you kind of alluded to some of the challenges with technology, right, earlier for that patient to even download the app, et cetera. I'm curious what you've seen on the ground with that. That's a great question. I was actually just having a conversation about this with Dr. Dalia Saleh, who's one of our uh, vice presidents for care transformation at Pure Health. I think just as we can't add a single extra task to the plate of a busy clinician and digital health actually take things off the plate and make things easier, same goes for retail pharmacy. We cannot send patients to the pharmacy to pick up hardware, be dispensed an activation code, and expect the retail pharmacist or a tech to provide tech support. They're not paid for that. They don't have time for that. However, I do think there's a role for specialty pharmacy. I think specialty pharmacy is used to this sort of in-depth counseling, has extra time, there's a higher margin, there are larger pharmacist to patient ratio. So I think a lot of this is akin to what's going on in specialty pharmacy overall. Physicians sometimes think, well, the pharmacists are just filling our prescriptions, but that's absolutely not the case. The pharmacists working with our patients on things like affordability, drug-drug interactions, and maybe someday they'll have to deal with app-app interactions as well, safety. I would love it if someday one of my patients is prescribed, say, Ambien to help them sleep. And they show up at the pharmacy and the pharmacist knows them well and says, well, Mrs. Smith, you just had a broken hip and Ambien can be associated with, you know, a fall. Have you thought about Sleepio or something like that? I'm glad you jumped to that example. We had Peter on last season here. I think a specialty pharmacist can really know a lot about digital tools within their area of specialty. So I, I see pharmacists as important partners. Now I'm going to jump to my somewhat usual selfish question. The role of health coaches in all of this within a health system and a DTX? Sure. I think there's definitely a human component with digital therapeutics. When I think about health behavior change, I think it layers on things like self-monitoring of the diet, self-monitoring of physical activity, self-monitoring of weight, and then layering on top of that some goal setting and then helping people achieve some goals around that self-monitoring. So the self-monitoring gets the data in. We set some goals to change the data that's coming in. And then we have to do something about it. And I think that's where health coaches come in. So I think health coaches can offer motivational interviewing. They can help with reminders. You know, Other ways to change behavior can involve incentives, and health coaches could potentially be involved in that too. But I think it's just a layer on top of what you're managing. So monitoring to me is not the same as managing, and I think that's where health coaches come in. At a very basic level, if I prescribe a digital therapeutic to a patient and they're using it well and start to fall off the wagon after a few weeks, I think coaching helps bring them back. I think an interesting question is, should those coaches be 1099 employees and maybe coaching for multiple different companies? Or does a company want to employ their own health coaches so they can control the education and teaching and everything associated with it? I think there's pros and cons to both of those approaches, but that's important thinking that I think needs to be done around health coaching. Awesome. Now that we're sort of nearing the end, would love for you as a doctor and as a practicing to give advice to other docs out there around digital therapeutics. Sure. Yeah, I'll give some advice to doctors and Mike Pepper and a couple of thoughts to the entrepreneurs who we partner with. As physicians, we need to stay up to date on this field. It can seem like it's a generation away where you would prescribe an app to treat a patient, but that time is here now. And so just as we stay up to date on the latest and greatest of new medication therapies coming out, 
think it behooves us to stay up to date on the digital tools that are out there as well. Digital Therapeutics Alliance website is where I would start. I frankly think your podcast, Eugene, is fantastic. Thank you very much. And I think for the entrepreneurs, it would be we want to partner with you. Our goal is, yes, to maintain the trust of our patients and ensure their safety, but it's not to gatekeep. It is to build partnerships and help get these treatments and tools into the hands of patients who need them. And so come find us, work together with us, and as you're building your companies, you think carefully about the level of proof that's going to be required to work with our patients, which is often going to be an RCT. Amazing. And of course, I would love that part of the curriculum in any medical school is this podcast. So let's see if we can make that happen. <laughs> that would be great. We started with you. And as always, we want to end with our guest. We'd love to know what's your why and what makes you get up every morning, aside from the two-year-old that you have at home. Aside from the two-year-old, it's the four-year-old. So <laughs> Okay. Good answer. I'm in a really fortunate position. I grew up rural, actually. I was the son of a family farmer, multi-generation, a public school teacher. And I think that gave me a firm foundation. I was the first you know, man in my family to go to college. And I think I have an opportunity now to help other people live their best lives. And so that motivates me. I remember when I was in medical school, I took a summer and did research at the NIH. And I was never wanted to be a grant-funded researcher myself. But I remember reading FDR's invocation there, which is, we cannot be a strong nation unless we are a healthy nation. And so that sort of thing motivates me. I think helping patients improve their good health outcomes helps all of us. And that kind of thing gets me out of bed in the morning. Well, Steve, thank you very much for those words and that quote. And pleasure being here with you on this podcast. Thank you for making the time. And we will catch you next week. Thank you very much, Eugene. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.